turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Uh, I, was, I can't remember who said this to me this week. Maybe one of the elders, maybe somebody else, but uh, I'm going to do something. We're going to stand for the reading of God's word and then we can sit down. So I invite you to stand as we read the word of God together. I'll read, you listen, but, but uh, we're honoring the word of God by, by standing. Revelation 11, beginning in uh, verse 1 through 13. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the, and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from the mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Would you remain standing for a brief prayer of preparation? Our Father in heaven, uh, we know that you have given us this word for our sanctification, to make us wise to salvation. It is living and active. It is our daily bread. It is food for our souls. And Father, in this time of proclaiming this truth, uh, we all need your help both proclaimer and listener, uh, grant us the grace we need to take to heart what you are saying to us and that uh, the voice of your spirit, whose words, word it is, uh, that voice will be the one planted in our hearts above the voice of a mere man. We want together to bring glory to the Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we all know that to establish guilt or innocence in a trial or to determine responsibility in a civic trial, evidence is often provided in the presentation of facts through a human witness. And whether that witness is attesting to some observed fact or as an expert to assess the meaning of a 
particular set of facts. The truthfulness of any assertion almost always depends on more than a single witness. Now, if you look up the Bible word behind witness, some of you may know this. The New Testament Greek word is marturio. That's the verb. The noun is martus. And I think you can hear in these two examples the etymology of our English word martyr. In English, martyr is literally a witness unto death. Now, as we look at our passage in, in Revelation 11, we can see both senses of this word. In John's vision, he's shown witnesses. And he's also shown how they die as a result of their testimony. But as we'll see, that death, that martyrdom is not the end of the story. There is a glorious resurrection of the witnesses that will coincide with judgment and death upon some, but drive others to give glory to God. Now, in the interpretation of this passage, I, I, I realize I've kind of landed in a place that uh, some of you may be struggling with, so I, I just have to preach it from the perspective that, that makes sense to me. Uh, but I acknowledge that there are some, uh, we would call them futurists, and these futurists as it regards the, the, the book of Revelation, they hold that all of Revelation is, or almost all, is really describing what will uh, happen immediately before uh, the return of Christ. So it's all, it's all future to us. And they assert that this here describes a literal temple and literally two men during a period of, of a particularly difficult tribulation, again, immediately preceding the return of Christ. Now, I don't, I don't find this view compelling, and, and I guess you'll see that in the way I unpack it here. Uh, there's the preterists, and that's the, the, those who hold in the interpretation of this that most of the pre prophetic predictions in Revelation, they've already been fulfilled. It's, all, it's already done. It's in the past. So they, they, they believe this, what we're seeing here, is describing something that already happened. And it happened during the siege of Jerusalem and the, the destruction of the temple there in uh, A.D. 70. And as you've probably noticed, moving along in this, I, I hold that, that the view that this vision is very symbolic and in this case, I hold that it's really symbolic of the persecuted church bearing witness to the gospel of Christ from the time of his resurrection from the grave until the time of his return. So I see it in this passage as we move through it. I want to make clear that I see the temple. I see the measuring. I see the time periods, the witnesses. I see this as apocalyptic symbolism. And I, I, I think that they're happening at the same time as the six seals, the unfolding of the six seals and the six trumpets. And as we talked about last week, this is, this is really an interlude. We've had the sixth trumpet. The seventh hasn't, hasn't been revealed yet. And there's this interlude, interlude where uh, last week we, we dealt with the, uh, the angel and the little scroll, which I believe to be Christ giving him giving him his marching orders as a, a prophet. 
and ultimately that extending to the church, this message that we're to proclaim. And then chapter 11, now we're being shown uh, what the implications are in this interlude, what the implications are of the prophetic testimony that John has given and that by extension uh, is for the church. So, as we move through this, this passage, I mean, I mean the story is, is quite fantastic. Um, it, it's, it's in a vision. We all see that. Um, and dreams, visions, uh, I think from our own experience are difficult to interpret because it combines, you know, if you have noted your own dreams, it combines things that seem to have nothing to do with each other. And yet, it's oftentimes, I think we try to ascribe meaning and I think I've been unsuccessful. But here, this vision is from the Lord. It, it's, it's wild, it's fantastic, but it's, it's chock full of imagery. So as we unpack this this morning, uh, I'm going to use a sentence that will function as my outline. Okay, and here's, here's the sentence. The church set apart suffers evil in the world until the glorious return of Christ. So three, three ideas in there. The church set apart suffers evil in the world until the glorious return of Christ. So let's start with the church set apart. Now, if you are, uh, have the good fortune or wise discipline <laughs> to have an IRA or a 401k, you'll probably check it. I think you do that. Um, you want to see if it's grown, right? Something's missing, there's a problem. If it goes down, we, we, we check them, right? Or, alternatively, if you have a collection of something precious, you look at it once in a while. Is everything there? You'll notice if something's gone, if all the pieces are there or not. And, and maybe more, more, more weighty, in a sense, in our child care, our teachers constantly count heads. They do that when moving from one room to another. These children matter. We, you know, some of them will bolt. Some of them will just disappear in the building. We, that's irresponsible of us. So we count, and it, and it matters especially if they go to something like the, the Bellevue Berry Farm. Counting heads constantly, right? And parents, you get this too. It's easy to track one, but if you have several... When you're out, Disney or the mall or somewhere, okay, we, we've got everyone, right? We, we count. You measure what you treasure, right? You measure what you treasure. And, and here's how I see this in, in our passage this morning. See, the church set apart is protected because the church is treasured. And I want, to, want you to see this, this, the first verse here. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Now here, another Old Testament allusion. You can look back at Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. There's a, a, a very detailed description of a, a measured temple. Now, measuring, I take it here, is really symbolic of the Lord's care and protection. In the same way that we count our children to make sure that they're all accounted for. Or you check your IRA. What you measure, you treasure. And I, and I think it's symbolic of the Lord's treasuring and setting apart His church. Now, I say church 
uh, I'm understanding as well that, that, that uh, the temple being described here is not the physical temple that was in Jerusalem. I, I take it that in the writing of this, the temple was already destroyed. So I don't think that John is, is wanting us to be thinking about a literal temple, but rather the spiritual dwelling place of God with his people. So that's, what is, that's what's in John's vision. He's told to measure that. Now, I'll remind you of Israel's history, the, the, the temple, and before that, the re, uh, movable tabernacle in Israel's history. That represent the fact, represented the fact that God dwelled with his people. But, but of course, over time, that temple was defiled by, by unfaithful Israel. And all I have to do is look at the earlier part of Ezekiel. And the physical temple that had been standing since the time of David and, and had been rebuilt and reconstructed and improved, that was destroyed finally in 70 AD, AD 70, as I'd said earlier. But that was predicted by Jesus. It was predicted to his disciples, Matthew 24, 2. And so, as you fast forward through Israel's history from the time of the temple, the temple stood in the time of Jesus. But Jesus was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in 7.14 that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed all the while as he is among them as Emmanuel, God with us. And you can see that the, what the temple was meant to depict, Jesus embodied. And, and really echoing that same idea about the temple in John's gospel, that prologue where he introduces Christ as the word who became flesh, I think you know this, and dwelt. But the word there is tabernacled, made his dwelling with us. And further, Jesus himself equated his own body with the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But of course, we know the story. Jesus was crucified, raised, right? And after he ascended to heaven, well, what about the dwelling place of God among his people? What about God dwelling with his people? Well, after Jesus ascended, Writing about the church, and, and here's where I'm going with this and why I take the temple to be the church, okay? Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He says this, and this is startling language if, if you're a Jew. He said, we are the temple of the living God. I will make, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The very language from the, from, from the Pentateuch describing why God would have the tabernacle among them. Paul says, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the temple of the living God. God dwells among us. So, the temple, and maybe I'm overmaking the case, but the temple is symbolic of the church. And he's instructed in his vision to measure it, because the church is cherished, and will be protected. And just if you notice as we read it together, John doesn't actually measure it. He just, so I think that's as well symbolic. We're meant to look forward to 
that time when the church will be gathered, the, the universal church will be gathered in the presence of Christ. And, and what we have here, brothers and sisters, is, is a foretaste of that. But back to what's going on here in the vision. So the measuring is symbolic of God's presence with his church in the world until Christ returns. And that presence is the church's spiritual protection. And hear me on that, spiritual protection. God giving us new birth through the Holy Spirit and the gift of faith, which ultimately strengthens the church to endure spiritually. Now, to go back to my earlier illustration, that retirement account, that collection, the children entrusted to you by the Lord, your care and protection of these, these have a purpose. Future support, that's your IRA, maybe your children. Uh, beauty and investment, the collection, seeking to bring out the very image of God in your children that they would grow up and bring glory to God. Okay, so thinking about all of the, those things. Your protection has a purpose. <clears throat> John is told not to measure, not, not to measure the, the outer court. It won't be protected. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's just pause for a moment. Why is John being shown these things? Well, the church, is set, the church that is set apart is protected and called to witness. And here, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, this is challenging. What's the meaning of this part of the vision? Again, another Old Testament illusion. Look back at Zechariah 4. You'll have to take notes to check up on me on this. There in Zechariah 4, the lampstand and the olive tree are understood to be Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest at the time. And what they did was they represented the whole of God's people. And they, in Zechariah, they are exhorted to trust in the Lord. Now, if we think, drill down a little bit more into the symbolism here. Olive trees, they are symbolic of, of beauty, abundance, and peace. I think we know that, the olive branch, right? Jeremiah 11, God's covenant people are likened to an olive tree that God plants and tends. And the lampstand, well, that was part of the furniture of, that the Lord prescribed for the temple. And, and we can look back to Revelation 1.20. Lampstands were symbolic of the church. So, there were seven lampstands at the beginning, right? But why two here? Why two? And this goes to the matter of witness. In the Old Testament law, two witnesses established the truth of a matter. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so even think of when Jesus was transfigured. He, he took Peter, James, and John up onto that mountain. And Jesus was transfigured and there appeared Moses and Elijah. Two witnesses to the authority of Jesus. And the Father said, from the heavens. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as if Moses and Elijah were going, yep, representing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Yes, we agree. 
This is the beloved son of God. Well, we go on in verse, we see in verse 3, uh, in the vision, John hears it. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. So these two having authority to witness, that's, I would say, reminiscent of Moses and Elijah. And I, I take it as well that Moses and Elijah are in view because of the authority that they have been granted. And I want you to see this in verse 6. So think Moses and Elijah in this verse. They have the power to shut the sky. Well, Elijah did that, right? First Kings 17, no rain for, for three years and six months. No rain. He shut the sky. Moses, what about him? They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And you should go back in your mind and go, well, that's Moses. He turned the Nile to blood, and he, he pronounced all kinds of plagues from the Lord. So here, these two witnesses, they are authenticating, they are speaking out the very word of God. And along with the, 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 the prophetic word, these witnesses have this power. And so I take it that these witnesses, in another sense, where the, the temple is the gathered church, the two witnesses represent the, the prophetic word that emerges from the church, the church's responsibility to, to speak the word of God. And in fact, this is really a fulfillment. And you might say, well, are we all prophets? Well, in a sense, we are, because what we are today is, to some degree, a fulfillment of a prophecy. This is Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. You know, in the book of Acts, they understood that's happening now. Now, how long? We'll get to the numbers. How long? 1,260 days. That's the same period of time, 42 months, that the Gentiles will trample the outer court of the temple. John's told not to measure that. In a sense, that part's not protected. The, the Gentiles will trample that. And of course, that 1,260 days, the 42 months, that's three and a half years. Again, highly symbolic. It's half of seven. What's seven? Well, that's that number of divine completion. So in a sense, this period of time is cut short. It's not the fullness. It's, it's half. Meaning that, that there's some mercy in God's part to, to limit that. It's 42 months. It's 1,260 days. It's three and a half years. Not, not seven, the completion. Now this, this alludes to Daniel 7, we're bouncing around the scriptures. There, um, there a beast, an evil kingdom will blaspheme God and persecute his saints for a time, times, and half a time. You get the math? Time, one year, times, two, half a time, half a year. Same thing. So now, why the distinction between the protected temple and the outer court that would be trampled? Why that distinction? Now, I've had to rest heavily on, on scholars who are brilliant. Uh, G.K. Beale is one, and he's helped me in this. And, and I, think it, I think it's true that the, that the temple represents the spiritual life of the church. 
that will be ultimately welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God. The outer court represents the physical bodies of believers, which are not guaranteed protection in this world. So this is where it gets difficult to live it. Verse 5 says, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So, there's harm. There's judgment for the ones harming, but there's harm. That's what we're to understand. So here, here, here it is. As we think about where we are as a church, where we are as a church in this country, where we are as a church in this world. The church will be physically harmed. The church will be persecuted and some will die. But they will continue. We will continue our witness. Those who harm the church will be judged. The, the fire that pours from their mouth is really symbolic of not literal fire, but it's symbolic of, of God's pronouncement of judgment in the end. And the witness of the church is part of what ultimately condemns those who refuse to repent. It's as if the Lord will say to those who dwell on the earth, to the unrepentant, you were told the truth. And you not only blasphemed me, but you destroyed my servants who I sent to tell you. Since the Son of God rose from the grave in victory, until that day that he returns in glory, the church will be spiritually protected, our souls, but we will suffer physical persecution. And our witness today is to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I read somewhere, often repeat this, comes up in the membership seminar, but the church in the world, we function in this world like a, an ambassadorial outpost of the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of God which we anticipate, but we're here in hostile territory proclaiming the kingship of Jesus until he comes back, praying that some will, will bow to his authority and believe, but knowing that someday when Christ comes, the time will be up. There is judgment for those who reject him. So our job is to announce that, announce his kingship. And so like the Apostle Paul, we must continue to make this appeal. We implore you, we say this to the world and to unbelievers, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's why. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If there was ever a more compelling reason to be reconciled to Christ is that. Brothers and sisters, we are here this morning because we believe, I trust that this is you, we believe that he was made sin for us the one that knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious gift. What a message we have. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be passive about the gospel now and think that somehow we'll stand for truth when challenged. 
We must hold fast now to this message while there is little opposition. And if we truly believe that this is our prophetic mission in the world, then by God's grace we will continue to proclaim it even when our very lives are threatened. Next, the church set apart suffers evil in the world. And I've already touched on this. But if you've followed through the scriptures, if you read through your Bible, there's lots of symbolism. Now, beasts are part of creation that man is to steward, okay? When they're domesticated, they're for sacrifice, like the bull. They're to eat for sustenance. But there's also this negative view in scripture that wild beasts are hostile. They're brutish. They're thoughtless. They are ignorant. They trample. They devour. They destroy indiscriminately. In fact, in Isaiah 56.9, the collective of Israel's irresponsible leaders are likened to devouring beasts. And if you look at Daniel, Daniel 4.16, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he was told he would be given the mind of a beast, a raving madman. That would be a consequence for his arrogance. But then in Daniel's vision, Beasts that he sees are told, he is told are, four kings who shall rise out of the earth, evoking an image of destructiveness, where the beast from the abyss, this is in Daniel, will make war on God's people and overcome them, Daniel 7.21. So, with Daniel's vision in view, we fast forward to what we see here in Revelation, verse 7. And when they, that's the witnesses, which I say is the church and their prophetic mission, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now the way I see it, the beast in John's vision is this satanically driven, which is from the bottomless pit, satanically driven, an evil king or kingdom or some kind of power center in the world that will threaten and persecute the church even unto death. Now, if we look through history, this is the persecution against the church and believers ever since Christ was raised from the dead. It's the persecution and death that the church in Smyrna was told to expect, Revelation 2.10. He says there, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. We'll see more of this beast later in Revelation all 13, all the way through to 20. But for now, we'll worry about identifying the beast, what it is or who it is. For now, just consider what happens to the church. They, we're referring to these witnesses, they will be killed. They will be killed. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, and that's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, and we don't have to guess it's its symbolism, we're told. So it's, that's really the places where, where evil uh, is rampant, where they deny God. And so verse 9, we're told, for three and a half days they'll lie in the street. Again, three and a half, that's symbolic. Half of seven, symbolic of a time cut short. 
And then the whole earth, this is all the godless, all the unrepentant blasphemers, what they will do with these dead witnesses, what they do observing the killing of the church, they celebrate. They celebrate as if somehow the world was rid of some kind of scourge. They regarded them, it says in verse 10, as a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Again, those who dwell on the earth, that's revelation language for the unrepentant. So they rejoice, exchange gifts. We've done right, we've done good. There's this overarching view, it's like, finally got rid of them. Talking about us, the people of God. John is being told to expect the church to be harshly persecuted and many unto death as martyrs. Now you know this from history, right? Christians in the first century, they were rounded up and thrown into the arena. They were devoured by lions for sport. Some were killed, soaked in tar, hoisted up on beams, and lit up as human torches. There have been Christian martyrs probably in every century. And still today, in some parts of the world, we know this, churches are burned, Christians are killed in order to be rid of of the teachings that challenge their false gods or their self-idolatry. Now, I know, in this part of the world, the church has experienced a, a prolonged period of favor. Even not too long ago, it was actually respectable to be a part of a church. But I think you know that favor is waning. And it shouldn't surprise us saw this in the news recently. It, I, was, I was quite shocked. It was revealed in the congressional hearings that the FBI was trying to infiltrate the Roman Catholic Church. I, maybe they were successful. I'm not sure. And it really sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. And what is to stop government authorities of whoever on their own view of what they think they're doing righteously for the sake of law and order, what's to stop them from trying to infiltrate our church or many other evangelical churches? And what's to stop them from using the force of law to marginalize the church, right? And we see this increasingly. Our, our elected representatives, reinforced probably in part by rhetoric from the president, they're attempting to, to enact laws that criminalize biblical, biblical convictions about, about sex and marriage, abortion, transgenderism. And, and I know, even if there are no laws in place yet, Christian views on these hot-button cultural topics, our views, biblical views, they're shamed as bigoted, narrow-minded, and repressive. You change the minds and the hearts of the broader culture, laws will follow. Now at this point, the world around us, and I say at this point, they don't care they don't care when we say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They don't care about that. But, having said that, what they do expect is that our core beliefs should have absolutely no impact on what we affirm and support. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, church, since the resurrection of Jesus, the beast has and will continue to make war on the church. 
It'll be fierce at times. It'll be easier at other times. Just we'll be treated like an annoyance. But the beast will make war on the church. That's what we're to understand here. So, so where's the hope? Where's, what, what do we fix our, our focus on here? Well, let me continue my sentence. The church set apart suffers evil in the world until, until, until the glorious return of Christ. Now, it's a story that I'm sure we've all heard many times over, and I remember it from other students I knew when I was in high school, later from other parents. Parents, here it is. Parents decide to take a vacation and leave teenagers, responsible teenagers at home. They leave food, they leave money, the address of their destination, people to call if there's an emergency. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Well, no sooner are mom and dad jetting off to warmer climes, word gets out around the school. It's going to be a party, right? Now, there's a younger sibling. She's quite uncomfortable with this plan of her older brother, but he threatens her. Somehow, threatens her. You're not going to tell. You're not going to undermine this. Now, the party happens. Drugs, underage drinking, debauchery. The police are called. Kids run. Others arrested. Furniture wrecked. Stains on the carpet, drywall broken, where somebody threw somebody else into the wall. And the older brother has a court date. It's a mess. It was supposed to be fun, right? And maybe some thought it was, I realize it might be a weak illustration, but, but that's what the human race has done. Right? For thousands of years, we, meaning mankind, we've been behaving like those entitled teenagers, like we can do anything we want. But Jesus will return, and we'll make it right. This is where it diverges from the parent illustration, right? He will restore what sinful man has destroyed and will vindicate his own people. The little sister in my story. Now, so John sees in this vision that the beast has killed the witnesses. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, again, that symbolic number of a time cut short. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Again, it's symbolic. So the symbolism of the witnesses who the whole world thought to be dead. The church who the whole world thought to be destroyed, then being given life by Almighty God. What that will do, it will be an unmistakable reality to, to the earth dwellers, the idolaters, the blasphemers, the unrepentant. It'll be an unmistakable reality that they have been on the wrong side. That the witnesses were indeed divinely protected in their souls. And in a similar way, I wonder if you can see it, that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, buried for three days, and then raised to life. The church will suffer the same fate and by the power of God be granted eternal life after three and a half days. And Jesus is coming back to make everything right. And he will give eternal life, scriptures tell us, to all who have loved his appearing. 
Now at the same time, while those who belong to the Lord are given eternal life, there's this thing that happens. Verse 13. There was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now notice those numbers. Again, symbolic. A tenth, a tithe, the first fruits of destruction on the city. With more to come, 7,000 died. Seven, the number of divine completion, times 10, times 10, times 10, to effectively multiply it. This is it. Life and vindication for the church and a violent death for many who opposed Christ. Now, if you look back, if you look back to the sixth seal, that's chapter 6, and the sixth trumpet, chapter 9, you're going to notice a similarity. Except here, the ones who don't die don't seek death, but in fact, it says give glory to God. So it seems like maybe they repent with the realization that they'd been railing against God and his saints. That's a possibility. But if giving to glory to God in this is not repentance, then it may be what the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. That occasion when every knee will bow, every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. The believers, the redeemed, and the unrepentant alike will finally give glory to God. Now, I said, where's the hope? In the glorious return of Christ. I hope, and I had to check myself on this, I hope we look forward to that day. And, and I feel this. Sometimes I, I'm going along doing things, making plans, and, and I wonder, do, do I really, am I really looking forward to Jesus returning? Or am I kind of comfy? Do I really take seriously the fact that, that I have a time on this earth and certainly a significant part of that means that I'm involved somehow, some way in a bold witness for Christ. Certainly, and very importantly, in the collective of God's people as we gather. Because we're looking forward to that day when Christ returns. And we're to hold loosely the things in this world. Because all of this stuff could be taken away, right? And they may come beating down the door. I, I don't think in my lifetime, but maybe my children's. They may haul you off prison you may be killed it happened in other parts of the world it's happening now what's to stop it from happening here the beast is making war so our hope has to be on something more than the here and now we look forward to that day when christ returns that'll be glory and the breath of god will will enter all who are dead in christ Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So, so what do we do while we wait for that day? We, as I said, we continue to have a, goal, a bold gospel witness. We will continue to fellowship 
as we pray and sing and preach God's word, we must love one another as Christ loved us and live out that unity with one another that is evidence that Jesus is the Christ and was sent into the world, John 17. And we must be ready to give a gentle and respectful answer for the hope that we have in Christ to all who would ask. And while there certainly will be persecution, possibly even death, we can be absolutely confident that the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you and he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So with the spirit dwelling in us, they may kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And so simply, while we, while we wait for that glorious day, while we anticipate Christ's return, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured death, despising his shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And someday, one day, and pray that it is soon, Jesus will return. So let me just wrap it up. The church set apart suffers evil in the world until the glorious return of Christ. And our calling together is to be witnesses. Martus, who give testimony, martyrio, unto death if necessary, knowing that when Jesus' kingship is recognized by all creation, we will enjoy him forever. And may God grant us the grace to be faithful to that day. Let's pray. Lord, none of us likes to suffer. We don't want to suffer for our trust in you. But your word warns us that that will come in some form. And the beast is, even now, making war against the church. And while we know in other places in the world today and in the past week and months, some of your own saints have been killed for their testimony. We also know that that possibility exists that it could happen to some of us here. And God, we want to be strong. We want to be faithful to the day of Christ's return. So we pray, give us the grace. Give us the grace to do that. Thank you for, for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Thank you for the, the promise of eternal life in him. All because Jesus was crucified and raised. God, that's the foundation for all we believe and all we will do. And so, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on him as we wait for his return. And we pray it that Christ may be glorified. Amen.